series uh, uh, that was inspired by this book right here, which is not a Christian book, not written by a Christian author. He just wrote a chapter at the end of the book that, I don't know, got me thinking about a lot of stuff. And so we're going to pick up right where we left off last Sunday. And I've got to pull my notes out because I'm not going to have the screen. Uh, they'll get it up here in just a little bit. So we left off with a quote last Sunday, and it, it was from the author, who's uh, Yuval Harari. And what we were basically talking about was, like, if you'll think through human history, if you think through the last uh, three or four centuries of human history, we have progressed uh, at an incredible rate of speed. So today, in 2020, we have more wealth than probably any other point in human history. We have more health, we have more technology, we have more conveniences and comforts than anything. I mean, like we talked last week, you know, we live in these very nice homes. They're air-conditioned and they're heated. We have indoor plumbing. We have easy access to food. We have transportation. We all drove here. You know, there's all of these things that, that we have access to. And we asked the question, are we any happier as a result? Has all of this wealth and health and convenience and comforts, has it produced more happiness in our lives? And the answer is no, it really hasn't. And the reason it hasn't is because of what uh, Harari observes, and that is the first part of the quote, if you, got, if you can find that for me, Sally. But it's family and community seem to have more impact on our happiness than money or health. And I would take the word seem out of it. Family and community have more impact on our happiness than money or health. That's because money's temporary and health is temporary. Family and community is the thing that lasts forever. So, I mean, like, you know, health and money, that may, we may temporarily spike our happiness in resp response to that. It may temporarily dip our happiness in response to that. But family and community has a more long-lasting effect on happiness. And if you look at those things, family, community, money, and health, of those three, which has been on the decline as we've progressed? is family and community. So even as we've progressed as a society, family and community have tend to slip back just a little bit. So it, it makes perfect sense why we're less happy. Because the very thing that makes us happy, our connection with other people, our connection to families and supportive communities, the very thing that makes us happy is actually declining. Then he says, this in the second part of the quote, he says that uh, people with strong families who live in tight-knit and supportive communities are significantly happier than people whose families are dysfunctional or have never found or never sought a community to be a part of. Now, when I read that quote for the first time, I thought of another quote written by another guy who said, there's nothing new under the sun. And the guy that, that wrote that wrote a book called The Book of Ecclesiastes. And there's a summary of The Book of Ecclesiastes, fairly close, you know, because The Book of Ecclesiastes, the author says, you know, all these things that we chase thinking that they'll give us meaning and purpose in life or thinking that they'll give us happiness in life, our wealth, uh, pleasure, uh, success, advancement, wisdom, all of these things we chase are ultimately meaningless. And in the end, there's really only two things that matter. One, he mentions, is companionship. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He says two are better than one, so companionship matters. And the other is faith. At the end, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he says in the end, um, Fear God and keep his commandments. That's, that's the conclusion of the matter. So relationships, our family and our communities, those are the things that lead to our happiness. So the question I've got today is this. Then how do we find it? How do we find that or seek it? He says, you know, I've never found or never sought. How do we do that? 
because that's not easy. It's a whole lot easier to make a New Year's resolution to go to the gym than it is to uh, join a community group. <laughs> because it's just, I mean, it's just easier to go to the gym. I mean, I'm going to go to the gym, and I'm going to work out. I don't even have to talk to anybody if I don't want to. But if I join a community group, somebody's going to invite me into their living room, and I don't know these people, and they may be weird, or I may be weird, or I, you know, we may not hit it off. I mean, who knows where they're at politically or religion? I mean, who knows? You know, I mean, that's why when we set New Year's resolutions, we say, I want to lose weight, I want to exercise, I want to make more money, I want to save more money, I want to get out of debt. We focus on the money and health. We very rarely set New Year's resolutions of, I want to spend more time with my family, I want to be more present with my family, I want to put my phone down more, I want to close my laptop more, when I don't want to work when I'm at home, I want to be present. And we rarely set those kind of New Year's resolutions because it's difficult to do that. It is hard to seek community and the things that we thought like you think progress would make that better right the more we progress as a society the closer we're going to get as a family it's actually worked in the opposite he says this in an earlier chapter i want to just this caught my attention this is another that caught my attention it's a chapter on the industrial revolution which we kind of just kind of came out of so i want you to put your thinking caps on for just a minute because he's going to ask you to think a little bit here but you know Prior to the Industrial Revolution, he says this in a section titled, The Collapse of the Family and the Community. Now listen to this. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, the daily life of most humans ran its course within three ancient frames. The nuclear family, the extended family, and the local intimate community, which he just simply defines as a community where people know one another and depend on one another for survival. So pretty much the nuclear family, the extended family, and the community drove nearly every aspect of life. Most people worked in the family business, either the family farm or the family workshop. The family was the welfare system, the health system, the education system, the construction industry, the trade union, the pension fund, the insurance company, the radio, the television, the newspapers, the bank, even the police. The, the family, the community did all. When a person fell sick, the family took care of her. When a person grew old, the family supported her. If her, her children were her pension fund. When a person died, the family took care of the orphans. If a person wanted to build a hut, the family lent a hand. If a person wanted to open a business, the family raised the necessary money. If a person wanted, and you kinda, he kind of goes through all of those examples, just kind of basically saying that if you think about it, and you think through, before the Industrial Revolution, we depended upon family and community for nearly everything. There was no Social Security. There was no welfare system. There was no, all of these kind of social services that the state provides now were provided by the family or community or they were provided by the church. And you can even think, you know, and this was a, maybe a part of the Industrial Revolution, but I mean, think of the great hospitals. Who started the great hospitals? They, many times it was communities of faith. They're still called, you know, St. Thomas, Baptist. You know, it was, it was communities of faith that started. Communities of faith started nearly all of our educational institutions. Even the educational institutions that are no longer Christian in their structure. You go back and look at Harvard and Princeton and all these. You know, what started those great institutions? It was people of faith. It was the, So the church was interested in providing education and health care and social services and, and all of these kinds of things. But then... Harari observes that the state and the market approached people with an offer that they couldn't refuse. Become individuals, they said. Marry whomever you desire without asking permission from your parents. Take whatever job suits you, even if the community elders frown. Live wherever you wish, even if you can't make it every week to family dinner. You are no longer dependent upon your family 
or your community, we, the state and the market, will take care of you instead. We'll provide food, shelter, education, health, welfare, and employment. We'll provide pensions, insurance, and protection. And, you know, I thought about that in the context of, you know, like you think about, uh, some of those things are good. I mean, they really are. Like, I mean, it's, it's good that we have kind of a safety net for people when it comes to retirement because a lot of people don't save for retirement, so it's good to have that safety net. It's good that there's a welfare system because there are certain limits to what families are able to provide for people or what communities are able to provide for people. So it's good we have that. I got a good friend at this church who's like, man, if we didn't have welfare, my, my family would have never survived. I, I wouldn't have eaten, you know, if we didn't have that. That helped me out of that structure. So, I mean, there, there's some parts of that that's good and necessary, but you can also see that as the, as the state and the markets begin to meet those needs, how the family and the community begin to fade in importance or how the church begin to fade in importance. And here's the way Harari concludes that. Uh, I got that quote there, actually. He says, millions of years of evolution, don't get tripped up on that, I'll talk about it in just a minute. Millions of years of evolution have designed us to live and think as community members. Within a mere two centuries, we have become alienated individuals. Now, w- the way I would say that is, creation has designed us. To, evolution doesn't design anything. <laughs> creation has designed us to live and think as community members. When God created us, he said it was good. There was only one thing God said was not good. What was it? It's not good for humans to be alone. Genesis chapter 3, verse 18. That's the only thing God said about his creation that wasn't good. It's not good for humans to be alone. So he created us for one another. And if you look at, fast forward to the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, this is a place I go to often because I love this text right here, but Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Can you find that for me, Sally? For he chose us, talking about God, God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So it's the pleasure and will of God that we would exist in community. Not only community with him, because he's adopted us as his children. He has invited us into his family. So the Father exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and he invites his creation to exist in relationship with him. But he also invites us to exist in relationship with one another. So we're designed for community. Christianity is a faith meant to be practiced in community. It's not meant to be practiced in isolation. It's meant to be practiced in community. The problem is we live in a culture that pushes against that constantly. We live in a culture that pushes us more to being alienated individuals than members of healthy and supportive communities. And like I said, even the things that we thought would help us are hurting us. I'll give you three examples, air conditioning, TV, and smartphones. All right, so let's go back just a little bit. Let's go back just, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years. Air conditioning's not that old, really, if you think about it. If I want to freak my kids out, I tell my kids that I didn't have air conditioning in school until I was in the seventh grade. Like Lewis County Middle School, there was, I'm sure they got it now, but in the 80s, there was no air conditioning. They had radiators and that the air conditioner was open the window. Because what did you need it for? You were in school in September, and, you know, and then you were done in May, so you didn't need air conditioning, or at least that's what they thought. And so we didn't have any air conditioning when I went to school. 
And that sounds like, and my kids look at me like, you, you grew up in the Stone Ages. Did you have phones? It's like, no, we didn't have those either, or Internet or any of that kind of stuff. But think about the impact, the social impact of air conditioning. Let's go back before air conditioning was common in everybody's homes. What did people do? Well, well one, they designed their homes differently because every home had a porch, and it had these big, huge, tall windows because you had to open the windows to get some airflow, and you had a what they call it, a, a dog trot in between, you know, the, the older homes that were built. But before air conditioning, this is where everybody gathered. I've got a picture of it right there. The porch. You couldn't sit inside. It's way too hot to sit inside. So you sat on the porch and you talked and socialized with one another. That makes you think of Andy Griffith, right? I mean, when you see that, you think of Mayberry. You sat on the porch, you talked and socialized with one another. And when neighbors saw you sitting on the porch... That was an invitation to come over, and some neighbors would come over and talk and socialize with you. But then we invented this thing called conditioned air, where we could actually cool our homes. So we didn't really need porches. When I built my house, we didn't even build a porch. You know, we, didn't, we don't need porches, and we don't need to sit outside on the porch anymore. So what happened was, as the, as the air conditioning began to become commonplace, we moved inside to the living room, and then we bought TVs and did this. We gathered around the TV. So uh, we don't socialize anymore. We're not talking with one another anymore. We're consuming content together, but at least we were all still together. I mean, we, there, most of us, you know, you had one TV in the house, and, you, and that, if you really want to freak your kids out, you say, we had to get up out of our seats to change the channel. <laughs> you know, we had to get up and go over there and turn the dial. And adjust the rabbit ears because we only got two, four, five, and seventeen. If it wasn't cloudy, so um, you know. But we gathered around the the TV, but we were still in the same room, so that was good. But then, within the last ten years, we invented smartphones, and this is how we gather now, right? If we're in the same room, we're physically present together, but not emotionally or mentally present together. We kind of are absor we're absorbed into our own screens, our own individual screens. We don't watch TV together. My family rarely watches TV together anymore. We all watch our own TV through our own streaming service on our own devices. And actually what it usually looks like is more like this. Everybody's in their individual room. So you think just within the last 50, 60 years, this is not that old. We went from being together on the front porch to being together in the living room to being in our own individual rooms with our own individual devices. And the question is, are we any happier? And the answer is no, we're not. I mean, scrolling through those devices doesn't lead to more happiness. And is it any wonder why it doesn't lead to more happiness? Because it, it goes against what we're created for. We're created for community. We're created to, to live together, exist in a relationship. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand, because some of you are, I know some of you are probably thinking, uh-oh, what's, what's his plan? I'm not getting rid of our HVAC unit here at the church, okay? I'm not, we're not going to get rid of air conditioning and say, well, no more air conditioning. That's unscriptural. We're not getting rid of the air conditioning. I love air conditioning. <laughs> um, we're not getting rid of phones. I love my phone, too. It's right there on the front. I check the messages in between services. So I love the phone. You know, I'm not getting rid of those things. I'm just observing how those things haven't necessarily led to an increase in community and how if we're going to live in a society like this, 
then we've got to be more intentional than ever about seeking real and authentic community. We've got to be more intentional than ever about moving to the front porch. And the one place that I think could help us do that more than any other is church. I mean, it, it may be one of the last vestiges of community, church and coffee shops. <laughs> but, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, that, that, that may be one of the last places that we've got where we actually gather together in community. And, and we don't even have to do it, right? You, could, you, you don't have to be here today. You didn't have to gather with a bunch of people today. You could have looked up worship songs on YouTube. You could have found a preacher on YouTube and, and just consumed some content and made that church. But that's not church, is it? You see, church, and I understand there's people that you know, are watching online because they're unable to come physically or you know, they're traveling. and that, I get that. I understand that. But I'm saying if, if all you do is observe or uh, you know, consume content online, you don't experience church because here's church. You experience church when you walk through the door and you see somebody and you say hello. When Presley came in and hugged uh, Cora, I think was the name. But I mean, like, I saw him coming in, like, oh, hey, and they're hugging each other and talking. That, that's church i mean that's like when you when you're coming through the doors when we have communion and people are saying hello to one another communion and brad says hey did you get any deer you know this this it's deer season or whatever that's church you know well, that's not church that's just socializing no that's church because if you look at what we were designed for that's what god created us for the primary metaphor for church in the new testament one of the primary metaphors i should i don't want to overstate my case one of the primary metaphors for church in the New Testament is what? Family. Look at this. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. So church is defined as a family of believers. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. But your fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. We're members of God's household. They're talking about the church. Paul's talking about the church again. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, he says, You're brothers and sisters of Christ as members of this household. Because one of the primary metaphors for salvation is guess what? Family. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, uh, no, Romans. This is Romans 8, verse 14. Look at this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, look at this, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We are Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. God created us, saved us into relationship, into a family. And God says, I'm saving you into my family and my household, and I want you to have connection with me, but I also want you to have connection with one another. The greatest example of this, I was thinking this week, like, what, how do you, you know, what kind of examples can you come up with that? Like, when you think about the community that we want, family and community leads to happiness and fulfillment and purpose in our lives. How do you have such a community like that? And I was thinking, well, God 
calls the church a family, and God created us and saved us into a family. And so look at the greatest example here. The first description we have of the church in Acts chapter 2. This is right after the day of Pentecost, after you know 3,000-something folks were baptized. It was more than that, actually. It was probably 3,000 men and then all those families. But right after that, this is the way Luke describes the church. And I want you to listen for family and community in his description of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And they sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. Every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. You see, you see how that keeps coming up over it? They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to one another. They met together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes together. Um, they enjoyed the favor of one another. That's church. Because, you know, I mean, like, your health is going to fail at some point. Who, who comes to you when that happens? Are you going to experience some kind of accident or crisis or something? Who comes? It's usually the church. And it's usually not the preacher. It's usually your small group. Anytime I've been to the hospital to see somebody, I've, I've been beat there, like, by days, by people of that person. That if they were in a small group, it's their family and friends that are there long before I'm there. I think we depend way too much on professional clergy for that kind of stuff. The church is us. It's all of us. Every member is a minister. I just happen to be the guy that gets to stand on the stage. But the, every single one of us is a minister. And when, when one of us is sick... We rally to that person. It's, they're providing meals for that person, and they're checking on them, and they're calling and texting, and they're praying for them. Or if one of us is experiencing kind of a financial crisis, they're going and trying to help in that, and how do we resolve that, and how do we help, and how can we support, and those kinds of things. I know some of you have been burned by that. You're like, yeah, but that's not my experience with church. I mean, man, they, they, that, nobody was there for me when this happened, or nobody was there. Listen, church is real community. It's not imagined community. It's not idealistic community. It's not utopia it's real community made up of a bunch of sinners, and it's messy, just like family. Our, my family, our family, everybody's family is messy, right? It's imperfect. It's flawed. People make mistakes. People fail to show up sometimes. People hurt one another sometimes, or they say things that they shouldn't say to one another sometimes. But at the end of the day, you're family, and you work through it because you got to common love that you have with one another you got a common belief that you have with one another and that's church i mean church is real community it's yeah it's messy and it's messed up sometimes but at the same time it's beautiful and if you take a step into it i believe there's untold blessings of just taking a step into that it's why you know we're like you know hey show up on sundays you got to show you can't experience community if you don't show up you got to show up you got to put yourself out there just a little bit go to a small group there's no way, you know, there's hundreds of people in this room right now. There's people meeting in Spring Hill right now. Uh, there was a service before you. There's going to be a service after you. There's no way to know everybody at this church. So you've got to kind of get into some smaller groups. You've got to make the effort, and that's tough. 
I know it's tough to get into small groups. I, you know, I've, I've been there, done that. It's weird because you're like, I don't know these people. I don't know if I'm going to like these people. And sometimes you try a group and it doesn't work, and you try another group and it doesn't work. You're like, ah, this community thing is just overrated. It's really not. You have to keep putting yourself out there and pushing through the awkwardness and the uncomfortable and that, and that kind of thing to, to connect with other people. Because when you connect with other people, when it clicks, that's when it, you know, it's why we push our kids to go to youth group, right? And it's, it's tough to go to student ministry. You know, on Sunday night, they have student ministry every night at 5.30, and, you know, they got all kind of excuses. Yeah, it is. I'm busy with this and this, and me and so-and-so ain't getting along right now. And all. But we push our kids. Like, we know that's important. We know they need a community, not just of sitting around looking at their phones, not a Snapchat or TikTok community. We know they need real community. And so we push them. And one of the things that Todd tries to do here is, like, he says it's all about community and relationship. It's all about experiences together. He said the bus ride to give kids the world village is almost as important as what we do at Give Kids the World Village because that's where the memories are made as we experience community together. And you don't even realize they're doing it. I'm revealing trade secrets here to some of the students that are in the room. You know, like, he's like, the bus, that's why I want to ride the bus. I think he's flying this year, though, isn't he? See, he's, he's ruining my sermon. Um, no, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I get what he's saying. It's just that community experience. That's what you want. So I, I'm going to challenge you, if you want to find happiness. This is the challenge I'll leave you with today. If you want to pursue happiness in 2020, pursue family and community more than you pursue money and health. Not only will you find more fulfillment there, but you'll find more purpose and meaning there, and it'll help you grow spiritually as well. So that's my challenge to us. Pursue family and community more than you pursue money and health. Let me say a word of prayer for us. And I got one thing to remind you of, and then we'll be dismissed, okay? <clears throat> Father, I'm thankful for your word and the, the examples we see from the early church in the book of Acts and the words that Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians and Galatians and um, the words that Moses wrote in, in Genesis as he observed that, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. We, we think of all of these words and how you've created us for community and, uh, even those that don't believe in you, there, there's something in them that still, as, as Harari writes, you know, there's, there's just something in us that, that yearns for that, that longs for that, to, to be connected with family and be connected with, with community, um, even if it's not our biological family, but our chosen family. And so, Father, I pray that you help us to, to seek that, help us to push through the discomfort, uh, the excuses, the cynicism, um, the apathy or whatever that is that's in us to push through that and really try to create more connection to family in our lives, more connection to community in our lives, whether that's through the church or whether that's through our families. Just uh, I guess what I'm asking is help us to get out on the porch more and socialize with one another and, and spend time talking with one another and connecting with one another. It's what you created us for, and um, we're thankful for that. We're also thankful that you invited us into a relationship with you and have adopted us as your children, and call us your heirs. That's really amazing. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray these things.